from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. So this week, our conversation comes out of Austin, Texas, where we taped an episode at South by Southwest, the annual conference and festival held every year there. It was my first time at South by, as people in the know apparently call it, Brian. (laughs) It was my first time, too. It was very groovy and hipster, and people (laughs) recognized me everywhere as the least cool person walking around. Maybe because you still use the word groovy, Brian, that could be a a dead giveaway. Anyway, it's this very podcast that brought us to Austin. We taped today's interview in front of a live audience at South By, which was really fun. And the taping was special for another reason, too, Katie. That's right. Drum roll, please. (laughs) That's right, Brian, because it was aligned with my National Geographic series called America Inside Out. Yeah, our guests today were both in the episode of your series called The Muslim Next Door, which is out this week. It's really all about the challenges and opportunities that American Muslims are facing right now. That's right, Brian. For our podcast, we spoke with two of the people who are featured in this episode, Wajahad Ali, who is a New York Times contributing op-ed writer and has written for a number of publications, a very, very smart guy, and Emmy-nominated producer Mona Haydar, who is a Syrian-American activist, rapper, that's right, and scholar herself. And you should Google Mona's music video, which is called Hijabi, Wrap My Hijab. And I just read that in like the whitest way possible. <laughs> Katie's very <laughs> Katie's very addicted to it. Wrap my hijab. I love it actually. That it's can be a the really song great for this song. episode. Yes. And at a time when a proposed travel ban has the support of more than half the population, when President Trump has pondered asking Muslim Americans to register with the federal government. And when hate crimes against Muslim people in this country are at an all-time high, well, let's just say we had a lot to talk about. That's right. I thought it was a very important and enlightening conversation, if I do say so myself, not because of me, but because of our guests. Because of me. Uh, Yes, because of you, Brian. (laughs) But things got a teeny bit heated when Mona made some statements specifically about Louis Farrakhan. Yeah, you should pay close attention when I ask Mona and Waj about Louis Farrakhan, who is, of course, 
Christ, a longtime leader of the Nation of Islam, who's been in the news recently for his anti-Semitic remarks. We were running out of time. I wish I'd actually push Mona a little more for refusing to condemn Farrakhan's hate speech after attacking others earlier in the conversation for saying hateful stuff. It was very ironic, Brian, I agree, because I think you really can't have it both ways, and I think Waj expressed that sentiment quite well. But as always, we're curious what you think. So please call or write in with your feedback on this episode at 929-224-4637 or comments at currentpodcast.com. And now to our conversation with Mona and Waj. Waj and I are like this. I now call him Waj instead of Wajahad. From the halls of South by Southwest. So Waj, Mona, I was going to give each of you a glowing introduction, but I just decided, why bother with that? Why don't you introduce yourselves and uh, let some people in the audience who may not know you as well get to know you a little bit better? Oh, ladies first, I guess. Um, (laughs) You know, smash the patriarchy, ladies first, whatever. Uh, So my name is Mona Haydar. I am a poet turned rapper, mom of two beautiful baby boys. I grew up in Flint, Michigan. I live in New York currently. I am currently in my last semester, hopefully, of uh, getting my master's in theology, um, specifically Christian social ethics. Uh, Yeah, I know, I'm a Muslim. Why am I doing that? Uh Um, But it's cool. That's that's good for now. Okay, Waj? It makes me feel so inadequate. I I don't rap. (laughs) Uh, First of all, thank you guys for coming uh, to the Muslim next door. I feel like this, depending on your politics, this is either the title of a horror movie or a romantic (laughs) comedy. And so, like, if Mona is the guest, it's a romantic comedy. I'm the Muslim next door. Wajahat Ali. Be terrified. Protect Katie Couric at all costs. America's sweetheart from Wajahat Ali, the Muslim next door. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Fremontistan, California, the Bay Area. Anyone? The Bay Area? Anyone? Yes, thank you. Uh, To Pakistani Muslim immigrant parents who thought it'd be hilarious to name me Wajahat. And, you know, it was oftentimes, growing up, I was like the token Muslim and token Pakistani, and I became like the Muslim friend of people, right? And I went to an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school, and every semester I got the highest grade in religious studies class. So it was me, Kalyan Neelam Raju the Hindu, and Naveed Mustafavi, the lapsed Persian. And Father Allender used to read the grades, and his heart used to like just, the Jesuit heart cracked a little bit. <laughs> uh, but even though, I just want to say this, even though I grew up in America with ESL, uh, couldn't speak English until I was five, I ended up graduating with an English major from UC Berkeley. And even though, yes, yes, thank you. And even though I was uh, healthy growing up, and healthy is a euphemism for big boned, and big bone is a euphemism for fat. I was fat. Uh, (laughs) And I wore husky pants. I ended up marrying an extremely accomplished, extremely smart high school varsity cheerleader. So hashtag, it gets better. Uh, (laughs) And now I'm sitting next to Katie Couric. I'm a writer. I'm a tired dad of two. And Pakistani immigrant uncles in my community, all the stuff I've done, they're like, Better, none of it matters. You're talking to Katie Couric. You've made it. <laughs> so I've made it. Everything else is downhill from now. I've made it. I'm the Muslim right. next door. Well, thank you guys for those quick bios. Uh, we're out of time. Thanks very much for coming. <laughs> I'm just I kidding. talk a lot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's okay. not kidding. So we know we have She's actually. Me daggers. We have a lot. No, I'm not. We have a lot, to, lot to get to. And first, to be Dickensian about it. These are the best of times. These are the worst of times for for being uh, for Muslims in this country. What words would you both use to describe what it's like to be Muslim in America today? Or is that question in and of itself problematic? Is that like saying 
What is it like to be a white Christian lady in America today? I think it's great, depending on where you are, your social location, your economic location. You know, I think all of that plays into the question. But I think uh, for a lot of Muslims in middle America, Islamophobia is, it can be lethal, as we've seen uh, in different parts of the country. And for some people, Islam is their break, is, is the thing that sets them apart. Um, like Hadima Aiden, who's doing amazing things on New York runway. And I feel like for me, uh, being a very visible Muslim has done good things for me. Um, and I was wildly pregnant in my first music video, so that Wildly helped. pregnant. Wildly, eight as, months as pregnant. As opposed to mildly pregnant. Right. <laughs> eight months pregnant. So, you know, I think we're very visible. We're a very visible population. Um, we can be, uh, not always. But uh, yeah, I think it depends on where you are. Lash? Exhausting and exciting. Uh, exhausting because I grew up, um, I was 20 years old when 9-11 happened. I was a senior at UC Berkeley. And that's a pivotal shift for that gener generation, right? Because there's always a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11. And for the past 17 years, uh, it seems that based on the roles that we choose in life, uh, I end up being this walking Muslim Wikipedia entry and a cultural ambassador for 1.7 billion people and 1,600 years of Islam, 1,400 years of Islamic civilization. And any time some violent extremist who I've never met does something in a country I've never visited, our peoples and our history is indicted, interrogated, investigated, uh, questioned, and sentenced by a nameless judge jury and executioner that always holds our loyalty as suspect. And so you're always like a walking explainer on Islam and Quran and Sharia and Barack Hussein Obama, who's not Muslim, but if he was Muslim, wouldn't make a difference. Uh, and, you know, like Hamas and Hamas, like everything, right? And, and, and like everything, like you have to know everything. And God forbid, if you make a mistake, you are personally not indicted. The entire collection of something called Muslims is indicted or something called Islam. And then they always ask you, why does Islam hate the West? And then when I go to Muslim countries, they ask, why does the West hate Islam? And I'm like, who is Islam and who's the West? And how come I've never met either of them? And it's also exciting because I joke and you have to have some dark humor. It's like choose your own adventure, especially with Trump, right? You might wake up and next day you'll be in the Muslim camps and you hope there's Wi-Fi. Or you might wake up and Mona's, you know, rapping with her, you know, extremely pregnant, or you say wildly pregnant belly, right? And so a crisis presents an opportunity. You're seeing Americans say, wait a second, this Islamophobia thing is real. Oh, Muslims have been here for 400 years. Oh, why don't you guys step up and be the protagonist of this narrative and we'll follow your lead. And that's exciting. And we're going to cover President Trump in a little bit. But speaking of a walking explainer of Islam, you set up a booth, Mona, sometimes with a sign that says, ask a Muslim. What are the sorts of questions you get and the answers you give? Can you give us a few highlights? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really fascinating when we, when we go out on the streets and we do this, um, People come to us. I, I think it's a social experiment of vulnerability mm. um, is what it really is. People really just want to connect. And so people would come with often authentic curiosity and vulnerability, and they would open their hearts and they would say, I feel really ignorant. I don't know. Like, do you wear that when you sleep? Or like, did your dad force you to wear that? Or do, do, are you actually like a free woman? You know, do you need my help? Should I save you from that white guy who maybe is your husband, maybe is like a lurking hipster? Like, 
Should, can, do, you need, do you need help? Can I liberate you? Mm. You know? Um, and so folks came with a lot of different um, things, but I feel like when people came with authentic curiosity and vulnerability, it always transcended that awkwardness and it always moved into the space of like, wow, like we're just two people kind of opening our hearts to each other. And I found to be honest, that when I was really present with folks, when I was really open and listening and, and really present to them, um, we could really quickly transcend what they maybe called their ignorance mm. because it was really hearts meeting. And at the end of the day, that, that's all we really need to heal a lot of the wounds that I feel like this country and a lot of the world is, are dealing with, you know. And Waj, what do you think are the, some of the biggest misconceptions about Muslims, even among educated people? You mean the educated liberals and the lurking hipsters? I'll give you top five. Uh, where are the moderate Muslims and how come they haven't condemned terrorism? Is ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, or Al-Shabaab representative of traditional Islam? Some combination of those two. Number three, are you guys commanded to do violent jihad against the infidels? Number four, are you trying to implement Sharia across America? Number five, why do you hate and oppress your women? And bonus, the Jews, why do you hate them? So those are the six misconceptions. And, and in those misconceptions are the assumptions that apparently, when someone asks the question, where are the moderate Muslims? It's such a troubling question because the assumption is there's no such thing as a moderate Muslim and a practicing Muslim by virtue of being a practicing Muslim is somehow radical, anti-Western, anti-American. You know, and, it's so funny. Yeah. On the airplane on the way here today, this morning, um, a very lovely woman was sitting next to me and she asked me, why aren't more Muslims speaking out against these violent extremists? And I was like, I'm doing everything I can, you know, like it's not my problem. But it's also not your and job. And it's not my job to, to address that question. It's not my job to like convince the whole world that I'm not violent, that I am a normal mom potty training my child, like trying to finish my master's degree, you know, like it's and not my job to educate the masses about me. What, what is my job is to be an authentic human being. But the burden also falls, right, because they've been doing the study for the past seven years. 65% of Americans say they don't know a Muslim. And when you say, listen, man, I'm your Muslim friend, they go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you. But not, oh, I was thinking about, and I'm like... You're, you're not the right kind of Muslim. You were thinking about Osama or Saddam or Ayatollah. So the image of Islam is something foreign so that when a well-intentioned person, and I'm sure she was really nice and sweet and pleasant, She's adorable. Yes, yeah, says that to Mona. In her mindset, the Muslim is not her or me, the Muslim next door. It's uh, <laughs> an ISIS recruit. But you talk about when we sat down together, Wash, about sort of the expectation there's, there be a condemnathon on yeah. the part of so-called moderate Muslims and uh, how unfair that is in terms of expecting a reaction, expecting you to go on television every time there's an event and speak out. Yeah, it's, so I'll put it this way. It's like a double standard for people to really experience this. Uh, Muslim guy in New York, October 31st, Sepola Sepov, Uzbek national, takes a car, rams through a crowd, kills people. Apparently he yells Allahu Akbar and all, all of a sudden on the Chiron it says, man yells Allahu Akbar, government investigating terrorism. Now everyone, now Allahu Akbar trans and everyone's like, where are the moderate Muslims and why aren't they condemning this? And where is your moderation? And there is a unique problem with Islam. It's a unique threat and we need special counsels to investigate. 
In Charlottesville, a young white dude, uh, some very fine people, uh, in the summer, too soon, my bad, uh, takes a car and deliberately rams it through a crowd, an act of terrorism, killing a woman. Katie and Brian, I do not think that you were asked, where are the moderate whites? And how come they're not condemning white terrorism? White people, you're not doing enough to counter white supremacists and radical anti-government activists. White people, where are your leaders? Now imagine if that burden was placed on you, and I'm assuming you guys would be like, I don't know those very fine people in Charlottesville. I'm Katie motherfucking Couric. What? Uh, why are you asking me to do this, right? And now imagine us. Same thing happens. So it's the double standard that seeps into our media framing, which shapes our perceptions, which shapes the narratives, which shapes domestic and foreign policy, and it weaponizes Muslim for politicians to gain votes and get elected into office. Well, and to that point, it's, it's interesting. Right-wing extremist groups have been responsible for nearly... White, white. In fact, we should add white. Right-wing, white. I think I said white-wing. That was a Freudian <laughs> slip. Yeah. You said it, not us. Yeah. You said it. I'm proud of Someone use the hashtag, quote him, not us. I'll favor it. I know a lot of moderate whites. Don't worry. Some of our best friends are whites. Are moderate whites. Yeah. <laughs> We love the whites. Everyone loves the whites. <laughs> anyway, right-wing extremist groups have been responsible for nearly three times the number of violent yeah. incidents as Muslim extremists since 9-11. Yeah. And yet, that's clearly not the perception. Why is that? Georgia State University did an analysis exactly of that when it comes to, even though white supremacists and radical white, what do you say, white-wing? White-wing <laughs> terrorists are responsible for the most domestic terror threats and attacks, there's four times as much media coverage when the suspect is, wait for it, Muslim in newspapers. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Stephen Paddock, October, was in October, when uh, from the Mandalay Bay 50th floor, shot and killed more than f almost 50 people. Vegas, right, yeah. Las Vegas. Uh, what was the media framing? Lone wolf, mental health problems, a quiet man. Who would have thought? Uh, Sepola Sepov does it, Uzbek National, we need to end diversity lottery program. And this goes back, and I won't get into it, Katie, because it's interesting. And even using the phrase terrorist. It's, it, it becomes, yeah, who is a terrorist? It becomes a meaningless term now, especially after 9-11, because Stephen Paddock does it, eh, lone wolf. Uh, the guy in Charlottesville does it, eh, lone wolf. Muslim does it, or black man does it, immediately the framing is what? Terrorist which changes the law enforcement response, the media response, and the political response. And, and there's just some angry white guys, you know. But it's particular for Muslims even more than African-Americans, wouldn't you say? I don't think the word terrorist is automatically used. Muslim and black are not mutually exclusive. Right, right exactly. So. But still, I think when it is a, a Muslim name, a Muslim-sounding name, then I think they're very, very quick to term it a terrorist act, right, Waj? I, we have to draw the parallels because it draws upon the history of terrorizing black men and women in this country. And black was synonymous, and oftentimes is, with Chicago violence. That's another code word that Trump uses, right? Savage, the enemy, the other. It's all otherizing language. And so that same type of otherizing language that was used against black people, Latinos, MS-13, anyone remember that? That's going to be a sexy one going into 2018. Uh, Japanese Americans in World War II, now tag you're it, it's the Muslim, and the tag that hits Muslims in particular is terrorism, 
whiteness or white supremacy in particular is given a pass, whereas Muslim or blackness, I would say, is always examined and the entire people who represent Muslims or blackness are interrogated. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our conversation from South by Southwest with Wajahad Ali and Mona Haydar. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I want to thank our listeners who called or wrote in with their reflections for this week's episode, and I'd like to share a couple of the messages we got. To start, let's listen to a voicemail. Hi, my name is Kathy, and I did not have a lot of familiarity with Muslims. Um, in high school, there were some, and it was during the Iran-Contra trials, and people were getting spit on, and I would I would go to teachers because I would see that happening in the hallway. And that was disturbing. Uh, fast forward, I'm a now a school teacher in California, and I have a number of Muslim students, and they're just great families and kids. And I just feel badly because, for instance, on Facebook, a friend will post something about all Muslims, and I have to say, you know, that's just not true. I work with these kids and these families, and they'll say, well, we're not talking about them. We're talking about the terrorists. And I think, you know, it <laughs> It's like when people say things about right-wing Christians, evangelicals, and I think, no, you know, you're making a mass statement for a very select group of people. Both are terrorists on either extremes, you know, someone bombing an abortion clinic versus someone doing a, you know, a suicide and killing people. If they're Muslim, they're, they're terrorists. And I just think when you get to know people and you can build those bridges, it helps. And, uh, you know, I ask questions because I don't know. And, and it's a very wide 
umbrella under Muslim, just like with Christianity. Anyway, those are my thoughts, and I'm still a learner, and I'm now 54 years old. Um, But thank you for doing this series. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for calling, Kathy. I think we're all lifetime learners. I feel that way. And we all have to continue to ask questions and seek the truth. And your high school memories of people spitting at Muslim students, uh, obviously, that's something that stayed with you that sounds horrible. And also the point you make that white extremists commit acts of domestic terrorism. And actually, they do so, according to studies, three times more often than Muslim extremists. But when Muslim extremists commit a terrorist act here in this country, it gets, according to a study by Georgia State University, four and a half times the media coverage, or at least newspaper coverage. So I think the way uh, these events are conveyed to us and conveyed to us as Americans in general really shape our views and often feed into negative impressions of Muslim Americans that are simply completely unfair. Next, a listener named Mary Gubrud wrote to us from Cedar Falls, Iowa. Mary, thank you for that. She told us that a little over a year ago, some women from her church, she's a Lutheran, decided to get together with women from a local mosque. And this is what Mary wrote to us. We began simply. We shared food that was acceptable to both religions for a meal and then began to get to know each other as women, mothers, sisters, and daughters. Building on those common threads, we formed friendships and then began to learn and understand each other's faiths. This group has grown in the past year to include women from a number of churches, the mosque as well as the local synagogue. We meet monthly, sometimes at a church, sometimes at the mosque, or sometimes at the synagogue. We share a vegetarian meal, potluck style. She said, we are Midwesterners, you know. And then have time where we learn from each other or explore common issues. Mary, your letter, your email makes me want to cry. You add, My life is richer for the Muslim women I now call friends, and this has allowed me to tell others where their misconceptions of that faith are incorrect. I think, obviously, this is what it's all about, spending time with people who are different than we are, seeing them for what they are, mothers, daughters, sisters, people who want the best for their family, and learning from each other. And Mary, I think you're an object lesson in my whole goal for this series, America Inside Out to get to know each other, to get out of our comfort zone, and to learn from one another. So thank you so much for writing, and uh, I'm very moved by what you said. Coming up, by the way, in my series for Nacho, I'll be exploring white working-class anxiety. Now, over the past several months, I've spent time in communities like Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Fremont, Nebraska, Erie, Pennsylvania, Storm Lake, Iowa. These are places that have lived through massive demographic, technological, and economic changes. So I'm hoping to hear from some of our listeners in rural areas or in the Rust Belt. What is life like where you live? How has your community changed in recent decades? I'm thinking here about factories closing, the opioid epidemic, or the so-called deaths of despair, and battles over immigration. Have these issues affected your community or even shaped your politics or your outlook? So give us a call to weigh in at 929-224-4637. 
In a Pew poll, 69% of Muslims say Donald Trump makes me feel worried. According to the FBI, hate crimes reported toward Muslims increased by 20% between 2015 and 16. What role do you think President Trump has played in all this? Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a political talking head, right? Like, I'm a rapper. Um, <laughs> so even like to, ex I don't know, I feel like we expect a lot of Muslims, like the lady on the airplane really expected me to be able to comment on like Afghanistan and what's happening in Iraq and ISIS and all that stuff. But as, as somebody who yeah, experiences his comments, about, yeah, just personally for exactly. you, yeah, um, and how that way. translates into to negative feelings for other people. I mean, yeah. from your own personal perspective. Yeah, I can talk about the way Donald Trump hits me, and it's just kind of gut-wrenching and destabilizing of, of a feeling of safety and security. Um, as, a, as a young girl growing up, I feel like I knew my family was different, right? And then when 9-11 happened, um, it was this really big shift. It was this moment, this like real in-breath, and like I could feel everybody holding their breath because it was like the, the facade is gone. The masks have been ripped off. And that was a real pivoting moment for a lot of Muslims in America to understand the intensity of, of xenophobia, of the rhetoric of someone like Trump, of those really deeply seated beliefs that exist, which stem, I mean, this is why I'm doing my master's in Christian ethics, um, because they stem from a theological place. White supremacy, you know, if you read the Founding Fathers, um, a lot of it stems from what's called Saxonism. It stems from this really theological space of like, we are superior, we are better, and thus we must protect, we must, um, you know, enclose, we must guard. Um, because otherwise it will be dirtied, it will be sullied, it, would, it will be muddled. Um, and for me, uh, somebody who really believes in the beauty of, of all people, of all ways, of all paths, of all wisdom, um, I think it's, it's, it's traumatic to see how um, really ideology can be weaponized. I want to kind of live in my artistic la-la land and believe that the world is so beautiful and like that we're just, we're on our way to this more beautiful world. And it kind of just breaks my heart, you know, to see somebody who is intent and hell-bent on dividing um, instead of uniting, which I feel like is so fulfilling and joyful, you know? Like, I want that joy for everyone, you know? Watch what role do you think the president has played in all of this and the rise of hate crimes and furthering Muslim stereotypes fake news, and all fake of that? Fake news, liberal yeah. media. Come on now. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, president Trump has essentially weaponized what was already there for several decades, this deep fear and mistrust uh, of not just Muslims, but people of color in general. If you look at all the stats and surveys that have come out now a year and a half after the election and People of color journalists like myself who followed the campaign trail would tell you this. It was primarily racial anxiety that motivated a lot of Trump's base. If you look at the first 30-second ad that Donald Trump uh, dropped uh, for his campaign, it only focused on two issues. A lot of Mexicans 
crossing the border and the Muslim ban, but they weren't really Mexicans. It was a shot of Moroccans, but hey, who cares? Nuances. Um, and the use of fear, hate, and anger, especially against a minority, this Mazel Tov cocktail, and throwing it and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you, yeah, thank you. Uh, that's nothing new. It's been used in politics throughout, both in America and abroad. And, well, he, and we should say that isn't a purely partisan comment because President Bush, after 9-11, made a large um, point, a real effort not to stigmatize Muslims. Islam is not the problem. Muslims are part of our fabric. He made two speeches. And the sad irony is, 16 years later, if George W. Bush was to run as a Republican presidential nominee, he would not get the ticket because he'd be seen as a Muslim lover, right? And so President Trump, what he did was these existing memes that were on the fringe just seven years ago, he realized, hey, it seems my base loves it. I'm getting more votes. Uh, they're coming to my rallies. Let's go after the Mexicans. He descended the golden staircase and he said, we got to stop and protect ourselves from Mexican rapists and criminals. And then he said, ah, the Muslim thing, I'm getting more mileage out of it. Let's do it. And now it's mainstreamed to the point where when I was growing up, the worst thing I was called was Gandhi, which is a compliment. Uh, I mean, I used to tell like the bullies, I'm like, thank you for comparing me to a world leader who, along with millions of others, threw off 300 years of imperialism. And they're like, oh, you're fat. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but I'm like, I'm going to get you in the end. Uh, but now, just to show you how it's personalized, there are parents who are scared. And, you know, I, we have, I have two cute babies. You got two cute babies. This conversation is now mainstream in Muslim American circles, people born and raised in America. I should give my kid a safe name. If I give him a Muslim name, that'll make him into a target. So maybe I should call him Ryan, because white people will call him Ryan. Or maybe Layla, white people like Layla. And this conversation now, I heard like two years ago, and I'm like, wait a second, guys. We're self-policing our kids' names in the age of Trump to protect them, even though they have done nothing wrong, and their only marker of being a suspect will be their skin color and their Muslim identity. We always want to protect our kids. But the fact that Muslim Americans have to think about this now in the age of Trump, just to bring it home, that's what's changed the landscape. You don't belong. You're not welcomed. Why? Because you will replace us, which is what they said in Charlottesville. And, you know, uh, of course, President Trump made a big deal about semantics and differed from President Obama in terms of wanting to call out radical Islamic terror. Radical Islamic terrorism. <laughs> And, um, and, and that is another way that Donald Trump has tried to bash Muslims in this country and put everyone in some big category. And why is that term so damaging in your view? And, and, and what kind of impact does that have around the world? Because, of course, the big argument is you cannot indict an entire faith, according to President Obama, but President Trump says it's fine. I mean, I don't know what to say. He's an asshole. <laughs> Sorry. Like, I don't know. Sorry for your podcast that you might have to bleep that. Or no, it's okay. I mean, to play devil's advocate for one second, his argument is you can't fix a problem until you identify it. And President Obama didn't have the courage and the straightforwardness to sort of call it what it is. And of course, President Obama's argument is you are painting with a broad brush and you're saying that all... And you know, President Bush's argument. And President Bush's argument the same way. They would not use that phrase for a very particular reason. 
Um, but, but what do you say to the Trump argument that, you know, you, in order to fix this, you first have to identify it? Well, I think it's fascinating because when it comes to violence, you know, violence against communities of color in this country, it's okay. You know, it's okay to, like I was at Standing Rock. It's okay to use water cannons on native people, indigenous people. Um, it's okay to use tear gas, yeah, that, like that's okay. It's okay to send drones to Pakistan. It's okay to you know, perform these kinds of violence, but um, when wounded people who come from colonized contacts with literally nothing to live for, which is why they are, they're behaving in these violent ways, they have these deep wounds that need healing. No, we can't see them as people. But for us to perform this violence, like we're, we're democratizing the world. We're, we are doing it under the guise of globalization. Like it's fine for us. Like, you know, when, when the money backs, it's like we, there was just an arms deal with Saudi Arabia. What was it, like $3 billion? Like that's okay for Saudis to, to, to kill Yemenis and to massacre them, like because there's money there, right? So that's okay. But like, some kinds of violence, you know, are not okay. And so again, it comes back to the idea of the double standard, which I think it, it's like that um, Sweatshop Boys song, if you're black or black, uh, brown or black, Babylon has come for your head, you know? That's real. Well, so the double standard also when it comes to language, and, and we've been talking about language, but language, much like ideology, much like identity, much like history, also gets hijacked by extremists. Sebastian Gorka, good old Sebastian Gorka, who was in the White House until he wasn't, uh, a week before Charlottesville said, we, we don't need to focus on white supremacy as a problem, right? And so language, when it comes to the framing, Obama said, and same with Bush, we all know what the problem is. We know it's ISIS, we know it's Al-Qaeda, but there are similarities and they're violent extremists. So that was the term that was used. Or you can go ahead and say violent Muslim extremists, violent Christian extremists by deliberately framing it as radical Islamic terrorism without any nuance, this type of framing is A, ineffective, it doesn't work, and B, it's counterproductive. It makes us less safe and actually gives ammunition to ISIS and Al-Qaeda because the number one recruitment of ISIS and Al-Qaeda is the following. The West hates Islam. The West is at war with Islam. And that's why I was on BBC NewsHour like 2015 when Trump became a candidate, I said, and this is actually proven that ISIS was actively rooting for Trump because he literally gives them their calling card to say, look, they hate you. He wants to do a Muslim ban. In addition to the Iraq war in Afghanistan, he says Islam hates you. He's open to a registry. See, oh, those recruits, those angry, dislocated individuals seeking purpose, join us. So it's counterproductive, ineffective. It doesn't help anyone. And I was at a Trump rally two weeks before the election in Maine that's when I knew who was going to win. I was the only person of color, only journalist. Awesome. And Rudy Giuliani came out, and they didn't even like say sentences. He literally just said, the wall. And then he said, the wall, and the bigger thing. And then he said, radical Islamic terrorism. And then he repeated it. And it, like, it wasn't even sentences or complete thoughts or policies. It was just the words. And it framed the entire enemy as, the wall is what? Protect against the Mexicans and immigrants. And the Muslim man and radical Islamic terrorism is what? all Muslims. But intolerance isn't only on the right. And I'm not drawing a moral... It's a human condition. ...equivalence, yes. Because, you know, Louis Farrakhan is back in the news. He's the longtime left-wing Nation of Islam leader with a history of virulent anti-Semitic comments. 
And he's been embraced by some liberal members of Congress who won't repudiate him and an organizer of the Women's March. How should moderate Muslims, moderate whites, moderate anybody's deal with Farrakhan at this moment? I agree with you that bigotry outright, you should have a consistent standard, not double standards. So if you're deeply and morally offended by anti-Semitism, you should be deeply and morally offended by anti-black racism, you should be deeply and morally offended by Islamophobia. Across the board. And I mean that, across the board. Because if you're not, then you're a hypocrite and you should be called out for the hypocrite that you are. When it comes to the anti-Semitism of Louis Farrakhan, first and foremost, I only represent myself, not 1.7 billion people. I only represent the six moderate Muslims on earth, apparently. Uh, it's wrong. It should be uh, condemned, period. It's wrong, period. But number two to your question, why do people associate with the NOI Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan? You have to know the history of America, right? And when it comes to black, not just black Muslims, but black Americans, the NOI for decades taught uh, respect, uh, talked entrepreneurship within the black community, talked about protecting ourselves because the local, state, and federal government abandoned black communities. And when it came to Tamika Mallory, one of the, uh, the leaders of the Women's March, she lost her father at a young age. And she says openly, if it wasn't for the NOI community, I would be lost. They really helped me and so many other black individuals because they were self-reliant, they taught us to you know, lift our head up, they taught to invest back in the community and so forth. So that's why these ties are so deep in the black communities in America. And number three is- Dang, leave something not, for me. Double standards, double standards, double standards. Look, if we want all Muslims and black people to condemn the anti-Semitism of Louis Farrakhan, fine. But then I want my moderate whites and moderate Christians to stand up and condemn the hateful comments of Jerry Falwell Jr., Franklin Graham, Donald Trump, and a lot of the other religious leaders who have said horribly anti-Muslim, anti-Semitic, anti-black, and anti-woman things. That's just me as a moderate Muslim. Yeah. I honestly would never say anything about someone who has dedicated his life to uplifting the black community. Uh, until you wouldn't say anything? You wouldn't condemn his anti-Semitic comments? Until black people receive reparations in this country, I, I really and honestly and truly believe that um, somebody who is doing his best to uplift his people, like, I have no place nitpicking and criticizing him and, and what he's doing. I, I don't agree with his positions. I don't agree with some of the things that he says, but his, he is trying to uplift his people, a people who have been forgotten, abused, enslaved. And so I, I'm not, it's not my job to condemn him. It's not my job to go out of my way to, to speak on a topic where I'm not um, a scholar, right? All I am is a Muslim and where I see injustice, I'm gonna call it out. And literally, until black people receive rep reparations, it's not my place. Do you agree, Wash? Do you think that's not your job? Uh, I, will, I will push back on that, that Mona has her point, but like, I think you can do both at the same time. You can say, okay, this individual has uplifted the community, and there's a unique narrative with this community in America that you have to understand why there are black leaders who can't just say, I'm going to completely condemn the NOI because they have done a lot of good. And at the same time, you can say, I condemn the hateful comments that Louis Farrakhan makes. It's just not anti-Semitic comments, but also racist comments, also homophobic comments. I'm perfectly fine saying that's wrong. But and I'm, I'm not a spokesperson for Islam or Muslims or, or even for myself. Like, 
I don't need to have an opinion on Louis Farrakhan and what he's doing. I'm not a part of, I'm not a member of that community. You know what I mean? I, I don't have any ties to him and what he's doing or what he's saying. I am not an anti-Semite. My husband is half Jewish. Um, we go to the Rubenstein Thanksgiving every year. Like that's my, that's, those are my loves, people who practice Judaism. Like, so for me, it's not, it's not that I'm choosing one or the other. It's just not my job to condemn him. Until but, black people receive rep reparations, it's not my job. But I think as, as an American, if, if I don't have a place in the evangelical community, right? I'm not evangelical. But if I hear that type of hateful language coming from an evangelical leader, and as a Muslim, if I hear it from a Muslim leader, uh, if I hear it from a Jewish American leader, and it's hateful, I believe there is uh, a shared value of morality, I think, or a shared equal standard here in America that we should be able to say, I condemn that bigotry. And I hope you stand up and condemn my bigotry. That's against my people. That's my I hope so. But there's an interesting, like even with the clap, sorry, even with the clapping in this room, there's an interesting like white adjacency. Um, I'm not a critical race theorist, so don't take everything I say um, too seriously. But you know, it's okay like with my pale skin to say something like this, but reparations don't get a clap. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, I'll clap for reparations. No, honestly, and that's a real problem. You know, until we really face some of the historical trauma in this country, I feel like we have no place criticizing a, a man who is doing his utmost to uplift his community, even if he is possibly a little senile. I, like, I don't know. I don't know him. Do you know what I mean? So it's not my place. Let's go, let's go from the political to the personal, because I know you all wanted to, part of, I think, not only getting to know someone who's Muslim, but also getting to understand their lives and, and, and getting to know them on a personal level is so critical. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is you, you have, you're in an interfaith marriage, your husband converted. So tell us what that was like and how you were accepted by his family and how your family accepted him, Mona. So his, my husband's name is Sebastian. Um, he's a beautiful, tall, blue-eyed white man. Mashallah. Yeah, I hit the jackpot according to all Syrians, right? Um, but, you know, he practiced Judaism for, for a little while to kind of see if he could honor his grandparents and live that life in a spiritual way and didn't ultimately connect to it and then practice Buddhism for a while. And we actually met at a commune where we both lived, an intentional community center. And I never foresaw myself with a white man. I, I you know, like I know I have this pale skin and, but really and truly I, I didn't believe that like uh, a white man could understand me and like my very Arab family and like we're loud and we laugh very loudly and we eat like Arab food and yeah it was just this this really interesting thing when you know he's like I grew up with a lot of Muslims my best friend is Muslim and now you're showing up in my life and I don't know what to do with that and then we, 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 you know, had this intensive with a really beautiful Sufi sheikh. And he was like, I feel my heart being called to this thing. I just want you to know that I think I'm going to become Muslim. Like, don't get scared. <laughs> you know, and because he knew, like, I knew that if he became Muslim, that I would really just, like, fall in love with him. And when that happened, um, 
you know, it was, it, was, it was over for me anyways. And, you know, his mother is Episcopalian, his father is an atheist Jew, and... How do they feel about you? I think it's a big old love fest, to be honest, you know? Food got better. Theirs did. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. They should thank you. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a lot of love and, and just, like, what I hope for the future of my children, like, to witness people who don't necessarily share the same practices to come together in familial bonds and ties and to say, like, we love each other and we're doing this for love, through love, you know? And I'm my family loved him right away. My dad was like, A-plus personality. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and it was over, you know? You know, um, I wanted to show the clip of you singing Rap My Hijab, which I walk around my apartment singing Rap My Hijab. It's quite an earworm for me. So let's roll that. All around the world, love women every shade power run deep. So even if you hate it, I still rap my hijab. Rap my hijab. Rap my hijab. Rap, rap my hijab. Keep swagging my hijab. Swagging my hijab. Swagging my hijab. Swagging, swagging my I think a lot of people are confused about hijabs and they don't understand sort of the whole tradition of covering. So can you tell us quickly, Mona, why you cover and why this is important to other Muslim women as well? And to some, it's not. Yeah. I think for every Muslim woman you ask, you would get a different answer. A lot of Muslim women say that they dress this way because it's modest and they believe in modesty. For me, I honestly would liken it to like taking on a practice of like meditation. For instance, for me, it's a spiritual practice, a recognition every day that I am not just a physical body, that I am um, uh, an intellect, a heart, a spirit, um, that I have all of these entry points to my being, um, and that, I, I, like India Ari says, I am not my hair, you know? And so to truly embody that and to invite people to know me as more than just my body, first. So we live in a consumerist world, you know, the world where things are bought and sold, including bodies. And for me, it's really um, an act of resistance in a lot of ways to that world and to say that my body um, is not up for consumption, that I choose when and where I do what I want with my body, right? That for me... For me, hijab is a, is a tool of liberation. And I know that's not necessarily true for, for women all over the world, but I truly believe that in its purest iteration and uh, intention, that's what it is. It's an act of liberation from the oppression, um, the oppressive belief that we are just these bodies. Which is so interesting because certainly counterintuitive for a lot of people when they see certain majority Muslim countries uh, forcing women to do this. But for you, it's actually the opposite. Yeah. It is a sign of liberation versus oppression, which yeah. is very different in other countries. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting the way religion is weaponized um, all over the world, you know, and, and used to oppress and control instead of, you know, I'm a student of religion, and so... I, I have come to believe that these wisdom traditions contain liberation, you know, that they are liberatory in, their most, in the most beautiful sense of liberation. 
you know. What, what do you think is the one thing you would like this audience and our podcast listeners to walk away with and to know as a result of this conversation, the most important thing that they should keep in mind when they're looking at Muslim Americans and they're getting this information from the media, from the president, from various sources, from PACs, from, uh, you know, right-wing extremists. What, what, how do you counter that and what would you say to people? If you aren't writing your story, your story is always being written for you by others. And if you aren't telling your story, your story is always being told to you by others. And for many Muslims, our story has been told to us by others and we've emerged as the sidekicks uh, or the footnotes or the antagonists of the American narrative. And instead of looking at us as being either exceptional or terrifying, if you can, look at us as your neighbor, your friend, uh, your partner, uh, the person who drives your Uber, the person who probably fixed your heart, uh, the person who makes a mean shawarma. Uh, look at us as co-protagonists of the American narrative. And yes, there are some dark days here. But like I said before, a crisis presents an opportunity. And what we're witnessing right now, and this is very exciting for me because I was born and raised in this country, is a multicultural coalition of the willing rising. And I see other people carrying other people's waters. And so let me carry your water, you carry my water, and let's eat some tasty food together and make America delicious. All right. That's my take. It's better for all of our kids. I mean that sincerely. And on that same note, I think it's, I would hope that people walked away really understanding that homophobia, transphobia, fatphobia, xenophobia, um, Islamophobia, racism, sexism, they're all the same disease. They're intent on, on dividing. They're intent on seeing um, some as less or not valuable or not worthy of love. And my hope is that people will understand that we can transcend that and that love is so much more fun, you know? Um, love is so much sweeter. Thank you so much, as always, to the team that makes it happen every week. Our producer, Gianna Palmer, our audio engineer, Jared O'Connell, and our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie. Thanks also to our social media whiz, Allison Bresnick, and Emily Bina, and Beth Demaz over at Katie Couric Media. Katie and I are the show's executive producers, and Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. You can find me on social media under Katie Couric, and Brian tweets from the handle Goldsmith B, and he tweets up a storm, so you all should follow him. He's fun to follow. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Bye. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.